Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this Friday edition of the Sheila Zielinski Show. I broadcast weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on WINB over on WWCR. That's Worldwide Christian Radio. Many ways to listen, including the customized app for smart device and Android by going to the Listen tab there at WeekendVigilante.com. And like me on social media, you can see those social media icons at the top of my website, the top right-hand side. On the pink bar, you'll see Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. My YouTube channel was actually suspended. I'm talking about suspension until I resolved my community guideline issues, which apparently I was in non-compliance with partner policy. Hmm. Well, thank you, YouTube, for your Stasi censorship. Well played. Well played. But in any event, my YouTube channel appears to be working fine now. At least it's allowing me to upload videos, which I couldn't do for the last 30 days. So that's one thing. And then Facebook, well, I'm on my last warning on my Sheila Zielinski personal Facebook page, so make sure you do like the Weekend Vigilante Facebook page, because I think my days are numbered over on Fascist Book. So FYI, I want to have that as a backup account so I can connect with you, and that's also why you need to sign up for my free e-newsletter, because I think my days on social media are coming to an end, and I would like to have a way to stay in touch with you just in case. And you know what I'd like even better? I would like you to go to the mail, the post office, on Monday, and I would like you to send me a personal note with your mailing address, because I'm not so sure at some point I'm going to start doing a physical mail out. And when you mail those, I'm going to spend a weekend on a project where I'm going to categorize all the mail into city and state. One way or the other, I'm going to try to connect people, boots on the ground that listen to the show, because you're like-minded, clearly. You know, the show doesn't fit into the mainstream media, and it really doesn't fit into the Christian milieu either, does it? You won't see me on a TBN or a CBN, probably for good reason. It's not a good fit, the CBN executives told me, remember? You're right, it's not a good fit. Anyway... Let's jump right into the show today, folks. My guest is Patrick Wood, author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, which gets paired with my book, Green Gospel, all the time on Amazon. It is my pleasure to welcome him back to the show. Patrick, it is such a pleasure to have you back on the program. Hi, Sheila. Thanks for having me back. Patrick, I think what our books do is they really dovetail together to present a pattern of Brave New World meets 1984 here, starting out with Aldous Huxley, Mr. Mysticism pals with Freemason Walt Disney. Huxley's student was George Orwell. If you go backwards, you've got Darwin's bulldog Thomas Huxley, father of agnosticism. If you go forward, you get Julian Huxley, humanist extraordinaire, the first director of UNESCO, prominent president of the British Eugenics Society, I can't help but notice the parallels between 1932 Brave New World. We have these mad scientists seeking to control the population 
this really is Brave New World meets 1984 right now. It really is. And the only uh, difference between uh, how you arrived at your book and how I arrived at my book is just where we came from. We came from different disciplines. My life experience has been from a financial slash economic perspective. And so I have that, you know, I have that history. I've watched these these economic issues for almost 40 years now. And I understand how, you know, groups like the Trilateral Commission have have manipulated the economic system to bring about this transformation. Along the way, I discovered that the movement, the technocracy movement, and even the movement within just the, the, the mainline, mainline global elite is intensely religious. There's just an unmistakable religious fervor. And you picked up on that. So we're dovetailing together, you know, here 40 years later, well, you're, not, you're not my age, but you understand what I'm saying. We're dovetailing together now with a common story that actually it reinforces the veracity of each one of us. We've come to the same conclusion coming from different angles. Well, it's very similar to what we see here with Hillary Clinton and her pal Al Gore. They're really promulgating a religion. Environmentalism? is a religion to these people, isn't it? It is. And there's different flavors of this religion, too. You see, well, it's not like the Catholic Church, for instance, where there's a kind of a unified doctrine that everybody has to believe. You've got different types of religious expression in this. You have, uh, on one hand, um, you have the mainline religions uh, that have gone green. A great quote from World Council of Churches. Here's the quote. This was last year after the Interfaith Summit on Climate Change. I, I didn't know this at the time. I got this after the fact. But the World Council of Churches issued a press release after this Interfaith Summit, and they said, quote, There's never been such a large amount of religious environmental activity in one location in the history of the world. This week will mark a watershed in the history of religion. It will be the time that people remember as the time when the world's faiths declared themselves irrevocably as green faiths, close quote. That's an incredible statement. The religions of the world have gone green. This also includes Islam, by the way. They don't mention Islam here. But uh, Islam has a flavor to it that is distinctly green. And they're following along with the same thing, too. But then on the other side, side you have New Age religions that are New Age, uh, I don't know, thinking, whatever, that's following after this as well, the Eastern mysticism type of stuff. You have the pantheist movement following after this stuff. And, you know, when, when you add it all up, it's basically the only, the only group that has kind of resisted jumping into this green faith business are kind of a, a certain subset of the evangelical church that has just said, we're, gonna, we're just going to kind of take the Bible and just the Bible and nothing else. And we're going to resist all of this other, other thinking, other kinds of thinking. And so... Uh, even within the evangelical church, there is great pressure to kind of go along with all this green stuff. I mean, it's in education, it's in, uh, you know, just in society, it's in your local community, people are talking about it all the time. There's tremendous peer pressure for people to accept this stuff. There really is tremendous pressure. And you know what's fascinating is you wouldn't think that these disparate religions would really have anything in common. You wouldn't think that Buddhism and Islam has anything in common. But what's so fascinating is they're finding a common unification 
Through what? Well, come on, Patrick. We've got to rid Mother Earth of this human infestation. We all have a vested interest in not giving Mother Gaia a fever with our, you know, being the CO2-emitting plebs that we are here. But there's really this unification piece, isn't there, Patrick? There really is. And 20 years ago, yeah, man, that's oil and water. They never have anything to talk about. But now they do. And now they are. Yeah. Well, they say politics makes strange bedfellows. Religion makes even stranger bedfellows. My friend, uh, Carl Tyker, I think you know who he is. Yeah, we're friends. Yeah. Carl went to the Mormon Transhuman Association meeting, went went twice, actually, Salt Lake City. And then the second was in New York. And he was uh, he actually just got to go as an attendee. Uh, They didn't turn him away because he came with a Christian perspective. But You know, here you have the Mormon Transhuman Association meeting, and you can't process that. It just doesn't make. (laughs) But there was Buddhists there. There was there was Sikhs. There was uh, various uh, various types of uh, of Eastern mystic religions and stuff that were there. And it's like, and there were some Christian religions face represented as well. And Carl was there and just observed, and he said, "You just can't. You cannot believe that these people." have found a common thread. Now, this was on, they were talking about transhumanism in particular, but as you know, transhumanism and technocracy are very closely related. They're both essentially based on scientism. And so anyway, they're, they're meeting, they're just having a great time of fellowship, and they're all talking about, uh, you know, how you're going to use science to achieve immortality, and and we're all going to, you know, live forever, and it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh, my gosh, that's right. Well, and one person that everyone always forgets, Patrick, in all this green agenda is Hillary Clinton herself. We know what she's doing now, and we certainly know what she did in 2012. But most people, I think most people kind of think she only just jumped on board with the climate change. But she's been at it quite a while, hasn't she? We know where she attended in 2012. It's so surprising that so few people know this. It is. And uh, so-called Rio Plus 20 United Nations Conference took place in Rio de Janeiro. That's where the original Earth Summit took place uh, in 1992, right? Yeah. That was where Agenda 21 was produced and all the sustainable development stuff that we have today. So they decided to have another conference 20 years down the road, and that happened to be 2012. You can count them. And uh, so they had a big shindig down in Rio de Janeiro, the Janeiro, the UN United Nations did. And so everybody was there that was there at the first one uh, and a bunch more. And Hillary Clinton was there. And, of course, uh, she was Secretary of State at the time. But she uh, waddled her way down to Rio, attended the United Nations conference and gave a, uh, a very uh, copacetic speech which was posted on the state.gov website. That's the State Department's website. And the article's been sitting there. I mean, you know, it's, they, they posted it, plus the video of her talk, which I put on Technocracy News as well, so people can just hear what this woman was saying. And so they can read the text of the speech, and they can listen to the video if they'd like to do that. Hillary Clinton is completely 150% sold out to sustainable development. Completely. If anybody wonders what she believes about it, all, all they have to do is read this article, and they will see where she stands with the United Nations. I even took the liberty of putting some of the text in bold, 
just so people don't miss it. <laughs> but, you know, the, one of the things that got me relating to technocracy, since uh, your listeners know something about it because they've heard me talk about technocracy, that's leading towards scientific dictatorship, in my opinion, very strong opinion. She says down in the middle of her speech, she said, we should make and must make decisions based on research and scientific evidence about what works. How's that for a mouthful? I mean, that's right out of the playbook. You know, this is just pure 100% technocracy. Of course, I've always said that about the United Nations anyway. But Hillary has towed the line. And, you know, everything that we're struggling with today with the United Nations, here she was back in 2012 pandering to the United Nations. So she said, we also have to be thinking about different development in our cities. Oh, boy. You have Habitat 3 meeting a week from today in Quito, Ecuador. And Habitat 3 is going to um, approve the, the, the document that's been made up in advance called the New Urban Agenda. Oh, boy. Well, here's the thing. She said in 2002, we have to be thinking different about development in our cities. Oh, they've been busy. You know what it's like? It reminds me of when I think of Maury Strong back at the 92 Earth Summit. He was actually quoting, get this, he was quoting from the great invocation about Lucifer in the plan. And if people look that up, it's part of the creed of the great invocation based in theosophy. And people know theosophy is a blend of Eastern and Western religion. It's very closely aligned with Vedic Hinduism. And if you look at good old Alice Bailey, she was a hardcore Luciferian. The one, you know, Lucius Trust, Alice Bailey, the New Age pagan head of the UN. I mean, it's really interesting that some of this invocation and this theosophy and Vedic Hinduism is wrapped in some of the green literature that they're sending out to these churches. And these churches have actually adopted these Bailey Blavatsky pagan doctrines. I mean, this is a sci-fi. It is. It's a global deception or a global delusion, the likes of which we've never seen since the Tower of Babel. The only difference at the Tower of Babel was that, well, the world wasn't very big back then. You know, it's the uh, those were the people that were there. They populated. They all spoke the same language, and they all lived in the same town, so to speak. And, uh, you know, God took exception with them building the tower and came down and scattered their languages, and people split to the four winds of the earth. And we've never really seen a global delusion since that time. There's been uh, continental delusions. There's been country delusions. There's been cults. You know, <laughs> I was just reminded of Jim Jones the other day and the crazy cult people drank his Kool-Aid. But, you know, we, we've had all of this stuff over the millennium, but this is the first time where there's been a complete global delusion going on here with this, based on this green faith business. Yeah. People going nuts over it everywhere, every country, every language, every little burg and village and city and town everywhere in the world is steeped in this stuff today, thanks to the United Nations and all the NGOs that are taking it everywhere they go. And they intend to transform the world. This is what this is the language that the United Nations uses. They're going to trans, they call it deep transformation. This is not just some kind of superficial makeover. But deep transformation would be more likely, you know, if you were to announce the world that you're going to undergo a sex change operation and you're not going to be, you say, I don't want to be a woman anymore, I want to be a man. That would be deep transformation. And that's what's happening to the world today. There is, this is not just a, a changing of a few things 
in the world. This is a complete renovation of the world system. And it's an economic coup first, political, there's a political aspect to it second, but this is an economic coup that's taking place globally because the, the very phrase sustainable development is an economic phrase. It development, business, it's, a, it's what, what companies and what societies do uh, how is how people work is how people you know uh, support an, an economic system they're intending to change this this is what christiana figueres did earlier this year at a press conference in europe when she said capitalism is out sustainable development is in that's right we have she said we have a defined period of time to change the economic the prevailing economic development model that's been reigning for the last 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. So they make a no bones about it. They're, they're saying, no, we're going to get rid of capitalism and free enterprise. We're going to kill it dead once and for all. And we're going to implement this new economic system that they promise has wonderful utopian-like benefits, like poverty is going to be eradicated. And this you hear this over and over and over again at the United Nations. They're the ones that are really promoting this idea. That's not the only catchphrase we see, but it is a very important one. And people routinely let it slip. They give, they give it a free pass. I don't know how they've done this one, but everybody gives it a free pass. Well, that sounds good to me. Well, no, wait a minute. I, I'm curious. What will the transformation entail? And what is the outcome? What, what's it going to look like when we get there? Those are the questions I want to see answered. And they don't answer them anywhere. They just don't. They, they talk about taking over the means of Consumption and production, which are economic terms, of course. Well, if you're going to create sustainable patterns of production and consumption, who's going to decide what is acceptable or what is sustainable for production? What, in other words, what can be made? Who's going to decide what's acceptable for sustainable consumption, which is what you and I will actually consume in our life, whether it be medical care or, or the water that comes to our house, utilities, electricity, energy, the cars we drive, the, the places we travel, the people we know, the ideas we have. What does this mean? And people are being very foolish to just ignore these questions. It's like, well, if somebody's going to do it. I guess they're going to do a good job. After all, these are people that have PhDs and went to Columbia and Wharton and, you know, all these great schools, Yale. <laughs> right. And that's what I really like about Technocracy Rising, your book, is because you really do lay this out in a way where a person can connect all the dots, the coalescence of all of this, which you do so well in your book. And that's really important because they do have an end game here. They really do. And it's pretty ugly when you look at it. But, you know, I want to say just, just a side point in this. When I was writing with Anthony Sutton years ago in, this, in the late 70s, he taught me so much that I didn't realize at the time, but I do realize it now. One of the things, one of the main things that he taught me was how to study patterns, how to look for patterns and things. And he said, uh, and then he, here's a guy who had had already a 30-year career, just an impeccable, brilliant career in uh, studying East-West relations between the, you know, the, the, the Eastern and the Soviets uh, and the Western world. And he already knew that the majority of his work had been 
determine based on patterns. It's like solving a crime even. You know, we hear these detective shows on, you know, looking for the serial killer, right? What do they look for? They look for patterns. And you, you, you find out who the perp is by often by examining the patterns in the crime. And then it becomes clear what's going on. Well, we use, he taught me to use the same thinking in analyzing globalism and globalization, what these people are trying to do. And back then it was a trilateral commission, and they're still in play today, by the way. But recognizing the patterns of how these things work is the key because every time, once a pattern is determined, let's say when, if I have a pattern that I can write down and quantify, say it has something to do with smart grid, that's smart meters and stuff on your house. If I can put a fingerprint on a pattern over there and I see, I'm looking at something else, I'll let another area, let's say I'm studying Common Core. And all of a sudden I see that pattern in Common Core. I see that pattern emerge in Common Core. There's a light bulb goes off in my head. The pattern is like a fingerprint. It's like bioidentification. You see the same MO, you got a good clue, folks. It's the same people doing it to you. That's how I came up with the majority of my book, Technocracy Rising. I've been studying these patterns for almost 40 years, and I see how these people work. I see their modus operandi, and I study it that way. And after I'm done looking at the patterns, I don't just present the pattern. Then once you see who's done it, then you can start digging in closer to actually find the smoking guns, if you will. Yeah, and it's amazing how when you're writing a book, all of a sudden you kind of go, wait a minute. Not only are there patterns and there's these fingerprints, and then you take it all together and you go, what did I just put together here? There's kind of that moment when you realize the magnormity of what you've put together in your book. And it's kind of like, wow, did I really do that? Do you ever have those moments? I totally did. Um, <laughs> more than <laughs> once, I have to say. Get, I call them uh, gospel bumps. <laughs> Not goosebumps, but gospel bumps. And you, you, you write something and then you go back tomorrow and look at it. And it's like, oh, my gosh, did I write that? <laughs> and it just, you know, you, it, it hits you from a different perspective. Like, you know, you're reconnecting with it, even though your mind might have kind of been on autopilot. Trying to, you're just trying to pump out words and make paragraphs and, you know, get a chapter together and done. And you're forcing yourself. And sometimes you have to. Sometimes it's like, like in a, you know, in a football game after you get clobbered three or four times in a row and you still get up there and go back out, you know, because you know you got to finish the game. That's the way it is with writing. It was with me. There were times when I just sweated bullets over some, you know, trying to get something out. I, I didn't want to do the research. I couldn't connect it together right. And finally, you just kind of come to a point where it's fish or cut bait. You say, okay, I don't care what's happening today. Don't. I'm shutting my door. Don't bother me. I'm unplugging the phone and I'm not coming out of this room until I'm done with this chapter. When I finally got so frustrated with everything and my procrastination and, and uh, I'll tell you quite, really honestly, I didn't want to write this book. I just, I didn't need to write another book. I'm not that, that's not where my ego is at, right? I knew I had to, I, and I, I knew that from, even from a spiritual perspective, I had to do it, but um, I procrastinated, I bet probably 90% of the time that you know, across a two-year period where I just didn't want to go in and even crack it open, you know, just whatever. When Tony died in 2002, uh, all of his research was lost, 100% of it. That put pressure on me. It took about five years for it really to weigh in, but it put pressure on me because I knew I had duplicate research, at least on this topic, and I didn't want to face it for a long time. 
really deal with it. But then I thought, okay, well, I need to start writing again. I, you know, start doing more research and stuff. And I did, and I got back into it about 10 years ago. And when I finally discovered technocracy and had spoken about it quite a bit on the, on the air and, in, you know, I knew that a book had to be written about this because it was the most important story in the history of the world. And nobody was seeing what was going on. People were just missing it. And this was after, you know, if, if Tony and I were to stand up on a, on a stage today, if he were alive, the one thing we could say to people today, I, I don't know that we'd want to say it just from an egocentric point of view, but we would tell people together, hand in hand, look us in the eye, folks, we told you so 40 years ago. We told you so. And nobody listened. They went dancing on down the hill and they didn't listen to what we we're saying these people were intending to do, what they've done already and what they're intending to do in the future. Nobody listened. And so I had that baggage with me, see, after Tony died, right? And you can see where there's a conflict here. It's like, why should I raise a finger to help people that wouldn't listen anyway, <laughs> you know, before? <laughs> why should I do it now? Yeah. Well, Anthony C. Sutton was such a big influence on my work. I read every one of his books. I mean, this guy was a total bloodhound, not just a brilliant researcher, but you could not stop him from exposing this stuff. They affectionately called him, jokingly, his colleagues called him the Hoover vacuum cleaner. Now, that's, that's, that, was, that was his reputation. When he got a smell of something, man, you couldn't stop him. He'd start baying and off he'd go. He'd be traveling over here and taking trips overseas and whatever. So where the heck is Sutton? Oh, he's on a hunt. <laughs> he's out there doing something. We don't know what he's doing. No, he's a Sherlock home of globalization. And he'd come back with a, you know, a box full of stuff and he'd bring it back and lay it all out. He'd start writing, uh, you know, writing these, these detailed books and stuff using all original research, just incredible stuff. But that was his reputation as just being like a, like a vacuum cleaner. He never really had anything... Uh, Anything to do, especially in his early days, with, with conspiracy, everything was backed up with rock-solid research. That's what got him kicked out of Hoover, by the way. Originally, because he started looking at this Trilateral Commission while he was still at Hoover, and just so happened that David Packard was president of Stanford at the time, and he was the founder of Hewlett-Packard and one of the original members of the Trilateral Commission. And he, they basically said, nope, we're not going to have – we cannot let Sutton get loose on this. Uh-uh. Not, not the Hoover vacuum cleaner. Rockefeller wanted to do this all along. They, you know, his his dad said that competition was a sin, and the Rockefeller crowd, uh, not just exclusively him, but he's a figurehead. He's an easy one to point to. He, he's the purest of the bunch. Uh, they have long wanted to create a global system that would favor them, that they would be able to to dominate and be in control of. And this goes back a long, long ways. I mean, we're, we're talking, we could, you could go back and trace this back probably five, 600 years easily. But starting in the early 1900s, we see this thread magnifying, magnifying, and magnifying. We saw several attempts to literally take over the United States just summarily along the way. They failed, fortunately. The conspiracies were discovered, and they put the kibosh on them. But Richard Gardner wrote a very important paper in 1974. He was one of the original members of the Trilateral Commission. And he wrote a paper for the Council on Foreign Relations publication, uh, Foreign Affairs. It was called The Hard Road to World Order. Right. And in that article, he complained that the frontal approach had never achieved anything in the past for them, you know, for this crowd. And 
you never really identified what the frontal approaches were, but if you know your your U.S. history, you can go back for 100 years and you can find some of those frontal approaches. They all failed for one reason or another. And so he said, what's needed is an end run uh, around national sovereignty, and we need to do it. We need to do it from the back door rather than from the front door. And that was the that was the heartbeat of the Trilateral Commission. They basically concluded we're going to have a new action plan here, guys, and. It's not going to be a frontal approach. It's going to be a backdoor approach. It's going to be an end run around the people that would block us. And so the first thing they did as they set out to do this is they uh, they put a hammerlock on the executive branch of the United States government when Jimmy Carter was elected. And they swept almost one-third of the U.S. contingent of the Trilateral Commission into office completely dominated the Carter administration. Every agency was completely dominated by these people. And they were after the mechanism not to have a takeover of our political system, which it looked like that to a lot of people. But the idea of getting control of the executive branch of our country was we were the greatest nation on the planet with regards to economic policy. We were the driver. We were the movers and shakers. And so what better branch of government to get a hold of than ours. And so over the years, we're not surprised looking back now from a 40, 40 years later, we're not surprised. We look backwards and we see that it was Jimmy Carter that started the position of the U.S. trade representative um, that the president appoints, of course, is his his U.S. trade representative. Um, these are the people that negotiate all the trade agreements that we've seen that have been so disastrous over the years, like NAFTA and CAFTA. Now the Trans-Pacific Partnership is coming and the Transatlantic Partnership is coming. Um, out of the 12 USTRs that have been appointed since 1977, nine of them have been members of the Trilateral Commission. Well, okay, guys, get a clue. This is it. This is the pattern. This is the history. It's an economic coup. They've taken control of the economic mechanism of the world, and they've done it in part through controlling the United States government to get there. It was just a means to an end. It was not the end in itself, as most people thought. It was merely a means to an end. And so here we are today. You know, we're looking at this stuff. We see we see their complete domination over the last 40 years. And they're the ones that have put the United Nations up to promoting sustainable development, climate change, green economy, all the things surrounding it. These are the people that have done it. Exclusively, I say, I have to say their fingerprint is on every aspect of the things you and I are talking about here. It's it's the same continuing mindset in a way that <clears throat> that it's okay for a small group of people to make the rules up for the for the vast majority of people, and whether it's um whether it's the United Nations making rules, whether it's the e, the EU, the European Union, uh, European Commission making rules for all the European community, or you know, any other group, whether it's, uh, you know, Islam making rules for people based on Sharia, it's all the same stuff. It, it's, it's the same pattern. A small elite make the rules out for everybody else. If the heart of man were not so stinking dark, I probably wouldn't have a problem with it. But, you know, until until the Lord comes, the, the righteous one who doesn't have an evil heart, uh, anytime men stand up and say, we will tell you what to do. You better look out because there's nothing but darkness that's going to come out of it from their mouth and to your life. It will bring pain, misery, and suffering. And that's been the history of the world. That's, and that's, what's got, that's what we're facing right now is a scientific dictatorship. This is, an, again, it's an economic issue.
historically, and I know you, you, you'll think of some Old Testament passages, like with Job, for instance, you'll think, you, you'll remember quickly that wealth has always been determined based on resources, not money, not just cash, but on resources. How many, how many cattle do you have, you know, on your, on your ranch? How many acres do you have? Uh, how many camels do you have? I'm talking, I'm thinking about the story of Job right now, right? How many herds of this and that do you have? How many employees do you have working the land, farming, producing goods and foods? Do you do you mine gold? Do you uh, do you bring oil out of the ground or other resources that are necessary? Resources have always been the measure of wealth. Money is not the measure of wealth. When you take a billionaire today, some of these these wannabe kitty million billionaires, you know, uh, with with startup tech companies, you get a, a guy all of a sudden he's got uh, a billion dollars in stock. Maybe, maybe he's got some cash in the bank. Is he wealthy? No, he's not wealthy. He, he merely has a lot of dollars, but he's not wealthy. And as you know, if the market crashes tomorrow, he could lose 100% of everything he has. So wealth is supposed to last, right? Wealth just doesn't go poof and it's gone. But historically, wealth has been measured in terms of the resources you own or control. And this is what the global elite is after. They're trying to get the resources of the world into something comparable to a global trust that would be managed by a few number of trustees for the global common good. That's why there's no property rights specified by this whole system. Agenda 21 is completely against property rights of any kind. They want everything to be owned by these ruling authorities. The technocrats, the Rockefeller crowd got, got wind. I mean, they, when they saw the vision of what Brzezinski wrote about in 1970 with his book Between Two Ages, when he got the vision, I expect he was overjoyed because they knew about resources for a long time. That's why they were big on oil. They had most of the, a lot of the oil fortune was in the Rockefeller family. And so they understood resources just fine. They also understood banking and finance, but they knew that the wealth ultimately was not in banking and finance, it's in the resources. So all around the world, including in our country, but all around the world, there's a, a press going on to convert national resources into the United Nations, into this global trust. That's why you see the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management in our country, and, and the Park Service Department are going out and gobbling up millions of acres of land in America, either converting them to direct ownership by the BLM or converting them into United Nations heritage sites. But we used to say that 2% of the people think, 8% think they think, and 90% would rather die than think. And that was really true. And it's really true today. There's a certain, maybe a certain 2% that really understand and that are, are kind of clued in where it is. 8% are the, the, the kind of the wannabes, the hangers on. I think, well, we, you know, we really know what's going on, but they don't, they really don't. They don't, they don't have a clue. And the other 90% could give a care, completely oblivious to it. They don't want to think. They'd rather die than think. And I do believe that if Americans understood who the enemy really was, that they might have a chance of doing something about it. But I'll tell you, for 40 years, I've been involved in one aspect or another of fighting communism and socialism and fascism and all those isms, Marxism, etc. And we're measurably worse off today than we were 40 years ago. And I've seen thousands of people like me along the way that have put their life into this stuff, you know, to try and push America back towards center. And we're worse off today than we've ever been. What that tells me is that we have not yet seen who the enemy really is. We haven't seen who the enemy really is. And the day that America does perceive that there is an enemy, then we might have some chance at actually going after and destroying this enemy.
But in the meantime, we're just basically boxing at shadows. And that's what that's what you see people doing, boxing at shadows. You know, you talk about the national political scene. Oh, is it going to be Trump? And all this dialogue goes on as if it's going to make any difference to anything. And they miss the whole picture. They just completely miss it. It's the people behind them that are pulling the strings. It was John Podesta, by the way, a member of the Trilateral Commission, that gave Barack Obama his entire climate change policies that he's working out on us right now. Exclusively John Podesta, who cooked this scheme up that Obama is using as his own. You know, he he likes his, he's got his ego in there. Oh, I'm so bright. I'm so smart. I thought this up. No, he didn't. Even the New York Times said that it was John Podesta who single-handedly gave him this, this policy on climate change. And so every time you turn around, you see these handlers coming and going. Susan Rice, NSA right now, National Security Advisor. It's the most important position, second to, I don't know who, second to the president. You can't get to the president except you go through the NSA. Susan Rice is a member of the Trilateral Commission. What? In fact, since he's been in presidency, all three of his NSAs have been members of the Trilateral Commission. All three of them. And Susan Rice is the latest one. Yeah, she's a prize. And, you know, all these figureheads, all these puppets being controlled by these puppeteers, the real end game here is complete totalitarianism. And that's really what technocracy is. It, it is complete totalitarianism. It is complete totalitarianism. It's, it's much worse than communism, much worse than socialism. I would take communism any day over technocracy. Yeah, I agree. Well, I know you got to jump on another show, Patrick, but thank you for coming on the program. And do come back and visit us real soon, Patrick. Absolutely. I'd love to do it. Thank, thank you, you Patrick. Folks, that was Patrick Wood. Technocracy.news is where you can find his handiwork. Such an incredible researcher. What a brilliant guy. Boy, he knows how to connect the dots. And if you have not read the book that Anthony C. Sutton co-authored with Patrick Wood, Trilaterals Over Washington, you need to get that book. Monday, I am doing an incredible exposition on Halloween, some things that I know that you are going to want to hear. It's fascinating, and you're not going to want to miss this. Trust me on that. I hope you all have a very blessed weekend. See you Monday. Good night, and God bless you.